0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today my guest is Dr. Mark Burford, author of Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field, published earlier this year by University of Oxford Press. More than a biography of Mahalia Jackson, the great mid-20th century gospel singer, this book is a reimagining of the study of gospel music. Dr. Burford frames Jackson as an important figure whose early career gives him a way to analyze the development of the gospel music industry with American society writ large, as well as within African-American Christian culture. I'm so happy that you could join me today, Dr. Berford. Thank you for having me. So uh, this is just a really fascinating book and so much more than I thought it would be when I picked it up. I thought, oh, this will be great. I don't know that much about Mahalia Jackson other than I love her singing. And instead, what, I ha- what, what you've given us is um, a real... Um, sort of analysis and, re, as I said, reimagining of what it means to study gospel music and a lot of different aspects. So I'm wondering, why did you choose to do that rather than um, a typical biography of Mahalia Jackson, whom you point out really doesn't have a strong academic recent biography?
1: Well, I think it relates to how the book came into being, because I didn't originally set out to write a book on Mahalia Jackson. Um, Originally, I was writing a book on the circulation of Black gospel voices within popular culture. Um, And this was a project I started on. Uh, During my sabbatical, I've been thinking about for several years, and I was very excited to have a sabbatical to dive into the project. Um, And as I was plotting out the chapters for the book, uh, I got to the Mahalia uh, Mahalia Jackson chapter, um, which, as I looked at it, became two chapters because she was such a big part of the story. Um, And then I was doing some research down in New Orleans and just realized that I had enough material um uh to talk more about her and that she was really a story unto herself um and particularly the part of her career um the early part of her career the decade after world war ii and so really i kind of pushed pushed pause on that other project Um, And then it just became this book. I realized I had enough material for a book on Mahalia Jackson. Um, So I've always been interested in Mahalia Jackson. I think, you know, growing up in an African-American household, her name is just kind of um, uh, just omnipresent. Uh, My parents had LPs um, by her, um, but it was wonderful to be able to forge a a relationship with her as a historical figure as a musical artist through the process of this project.
0: Um so th- why did you decide to stop at in the 1950s when she was sort of at the beginning of the most famous part of her career? Why not continue that until say through her whole her whole career?
1: It's a great question. And I think really it's because uh, I think the latter part of her career from the mid 50s on are in some ways more visible um, because of her participation in the civil rights movement, because of the wider circulation of her work for Columbia Records, or her appearances on, on television. Um, she really became an icon from the mid-'50s on until her death in 1972. The earlier part of her career, I think, is interesting, though, because that's precisely when she's having to navigate and really calibrate these two careers. One career as a church singer. She grew up in New Orleans um, where she began singing there um, and moved to Chicago and was involved with the early years of the modern gospel. Movement, but was really working as a as a church singer, as a uh, uh, evangelical singer. But then, through opportunities that began to pop up in the late '40s, uh, the opportunity to record for the independent record uh, label Apollo Records, um, eventually being signed away from Apollo Records by Columbia, um, where her uh, visibility and kind of. Um, quality of production kind of increased. Um, She had her own radio show. She had her own television show. Um, and there is a period there in the late forties and early fifties where she's really having to shuttle back and forth. I talk about her in the conclusion as being a mobile figure, and she's mobile in lots of different ways, right? She migrates from New Orleans to Chicago in that sense as part of the great migration. But she was also mobile in the ways in which she had to be a public figure. Um Uh, the different audiences that she had to perform for. Um, So there literally would be days where she's in the morning singing at a Black church on the South Side and then hustling up to the loop Um, in downtown Chicago and recording a radio show or a television show. Um, And I was really fascinated with what the kind of subjective consequences of that for her and how she thought about what she did, how she was received, how her Black church base really made sense of her fame and her representation of the Black gospel field uh, in broader circles. So I do think there is a qualitatively different dynamics of her career up through 1955, which is the basically the end of her uh, time with Columbia. And I think it marks a seam on multiple levels. In 55 she had um, very serious illness uh, that forced her to kind of unplug a little bit and then kind of reboot on the other side of that. Uh, I think the production of her work for Columbia shifts. After 1955 to the initial year where they're really trying to capture um, her gospel performance practice on those albums to afterwards where they really do turn toward a more pop inspirational uh, kind of aesthetic. Um, I think her audience shifts um, noticeably before 1955 to 19 after 1955. So obviously these these uh, seams are. Uh, artificial and arbitrary in some ways, but I think uh, it's a meaningful one in her case.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up the idea of migration because that's and mobility because that's one of the things that struck me as well. And you know, of course, in the the conclusion of the book, you really bring that out very explicitly. But it runs throughout the book, and it struck me how how at times, well, for one thing, how her life. Story really mimics the larger movements that we see lots and lots of African Americans making, both themselves and their families, as in her case. But also, you know, there are times when where she is seems super important, and where she's coming out of in a particular cultural context or musical context is very important. And then other times when um, it's more important that she's moving around a lot. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this just this idea of migration as being? Um, a theme for the book and also for the sort of Black experience um, writ large that's part of that feel, uh, gospel field that you're talking about.
1: Well, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually, because um, uh, there are moments in her career, in her performances, in her professional life, in her spiritual life, where the rootedness to place really matters. Uh, and then there's this pull as gospel music, Black gospel music, Becomes mainstream, so to speak, uh, where the transcending of place and vernacular specificity is um, is more of a salient issue. Um, but I do think about her life and her family history as a kind of quintessentially African American one. Um, she was uh, her grandparents were born into slavery uh, in central Louisiana um were emancipated but stayed like many african americans on the land where they had worked um and w- so they were there her grandparents for a good half century um her aunts and uncles including her mother uh were born in the point coupé parish in central louisiana um, were sharecroppers uh, and then uh, after World War One, or actually really around 1900, but in the ensuing decade or so, started to migrate um, uh, to New Orleans, uh, where they began a new uh, chapter in the family story. Um, and she lived there until 1931, um, when she was 20, she was born in 1911. So she was the first member of her family to be born in New Orleans. So in some ways her birth also marks a seam in the family story. Um, and then eventually moves to Chicago. So this route of, from enslavement to emancipation, uh, to migration from the rural South, to the urban South, and then the subsequent migration from the uh, urban South to the urban North is a pathway that so many uh, families had to negotiate. And she, it, her family history really mattered to her. She really carried that with her as a way of thinking about what, her, uh, what the music meant to her, what it meant for her to be performing that music in um, uh, ornate, Uh, and kind of exquisite uh, settings that were far removed from that family history, she was very conscious of that. Um, And in some ways, I think often saw herself as a vessel for African-American history. So she was very mobile in that sense. She was also, I think, because she was born Baptist, um, but was also very interested in Pentecostal, sanctified holiness, Uh, religious traditions as well, too, and liked that style of worship. She would shuttle back and forth, even in New Orleans, between going to her Baptist church, which perhaps had more staid, buttoned-down styles of performance to these holiness churches. Um, So she became, early on, very kind of um, uh, mobile in terms of worship, being able to perform in different styles, and she brought that with her to Chicago, which initially uh, generated some criticism on the part of some more conservative Baptists that her more exuberant style of worship was perhaps inappropriate in, in mainline Baptist churches. Um, but I think it served her well in being able to communicate to different audiences uh, and really uh, having a, a toolkit of performance strategies that uh, made her such a dynamic performer that wouldn't Enable her to be a recitalist in one context, um, and uh, raise the roof in another.
0: All of that is really fascinating. To I I love the idea of her being sort of the embodiment of African American history because I really get that sense from from the book as well. I mean she she really could be the example of such uh, you know of so many different kinds of experiences that many Black Americans had have themselves or have in their family histories. so um, and I think that really comes through in the book. but but one thing that's interesting about the migration is that maybe one idea is we could think about migration of styles, which you sort of were look, talking about at the end where she she had, you know, she was willing to do a more sort of exuberant sanctified style, plus a more recitalist type style. But one thing she's very famous for is not wanting to record secular music, which of course Rosetta Tharp, who was, Big at the same time was very willing to do, and I. But I wondered as you talk so much about how her style becomes a little bit more poppy as we come along. Is, is that sort of overblown? The sort of well, she refused to to consider um, secular music, or do you think it's it's that sort of? I mean, I think one thing I always think about Mahalia Jackson is that you know refusal to do jazz. But I'm wondering if uh, if, if maybe you're saying that's a bit overblown.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting and a complicated question because, of course, in answering it, you're representing the views of a of another person. So I just try to think about it in terms of what she did and um, what we uh, know she did. Um, I think, on the one hand, she did identify very strongly uh, with not performing, as she said, she she only performed God's music in God's places and. Um, she was very critical. For instance, in the early 60s, there was a gospel nightclub in New York City called the Sweet Chariot, um, and she was out front picketing that nightclub because she thought it was a desecration of, uh, of gospel music. Um, she would often admonish audiences if she was performing, say, uh, somewhere where audiences were getting uh, exuberant in their response to her music in a way that she felt... Um, was uh, slightly indulgent. She would say, "We can't make a mockery of this. you know, this is religious music, this music is meaningful to me. So I think that she was very um, uh, strict about continually identifying herself as a church singer. At the same time, um, uh, you know, you'd have to uh, overlook the fact that she did perform at the Newport Jazz Festival. Um, she did, uh, sing, um, later in her Columbia career songs that were not gospel songs or even church songs, um, on her radio program, her radio program. I I spent a chapter of the book talking about that. And I find that really interesting because that was an enormous opportunity for her. Um, and she is singing gospel songs, but she's singing a range of things on her gospel, uh, Uh, on her radio program. The Mahalia Jackson Show was a national radio program. It was huge news in the Black community and in the Black press. It debuted in September 1954 and then went off the air in um, February 1955. Um, But on that program, she was singing uh, maybe sentimental parlor songs. Uh, She was singing... uh, some gospel songs. She was singing uh, African-American spirituals. Um, She was singing uh, show tunes that were more inspirational in nature. Um, uh, uh, I forget the name of the uh, song from Carousel, uh, You'll Never Walk Alone. That's what it was. Um, And uh, so she was, in actuality, she she sang Danny Boy. and, And you hear her when she explains her repertory um, she kind of, she kind of fudges a little bit, quite frankly. Where she will explain a song as being implicitly religious, um, or that "Danny Boy" is about sorrow and spirituals are sorrow songs, and therefore "Danny Boy" is okay to sing. So there's, I, I think there's an element of her. There are moments where I think, if we're being honest, that she's having it both ways. That she's taking advantage of opportunities um, that were remarkable and kind of unthinkable. Um, for Black um, religious artists to that point. But I think the important thing maybe is that she continued to identify strongly that way, that she never saw herself as a popular artist in the way I think Rosetta Tharp did. I think Rosetta Tharp wasn't really concerned about that Line that she uh, considered it all available to her and would perform, say, with the Lucky Millinder Orchestra and perform kind of jazz swing band versions of these religious songs. So I think that she did have a discernibly different attitude about the repertory than Sister Rosetta Tharp. But that kind of necessity of compromise or at least. Um, Uh, Negotiation is something I think is actually quite interesting. What it meant to kind of perform this repertory and take it out of a in group context and perform it in a public setting kind of raises all kinds of questions that kind of uh, extend beyond uh, the specific case of Mahalia Jackson.
0: I'm glad you brought up her radio show because I found this part of her career and this part of the book really fascinating for those larger questions. So she has this radio show, which is relatively short-lived and then relatively short-lived TV show right after that. And, um, what interested me was, you know, when she has these opportunities, um, she also gives up a certain amount of control over her repertory choices. At least that's how I read it. That that you know, um, in return for this greater visibility, and of course also signing with Columbia as well, um, it injects a whole layer of capital and of power and of um, uh, concerns that uh, national type concerns. Um, that weren't part of her career before that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know what that um you know, how that affected her career and what were those forces that she was having to deal with now for for really the first time?
1: Yeah, I think if there's an overarching question uh, that the book poses, and I think less the book than really Jackson's career uh, poses, um, is what are the compromises? What are the negotiations? Um, what things are brokered um, by uh, by the fact of uh, of being black in public? You know, what are the stakes of public blackness? And I think that that's really important in her career um, because, in some ways, what interested um, uh, Columbia. CBS, various other television programs, the kind of uh, pop cultural industries uh, in Mahalia Jackson was the fact that she was identifiably uh, uh, a kind of exemplar of uh, Black vernacular culture. Um, But I do think in order to enact those opportunities that that appeal um, uh, created for her, Uh, It was less that she shifted um, than it was, for instance, the production of her recordings shifted. So if you listen to her Apollo recordings from the late 40s and early 50s, they sound quite different than uh, her Columbia recordings of the late 50s and, and early 60s. Um, so I do think there is that, uh, and she struggled with that. Uh, I think she knew she sometimes referred to the repertory they gave her at Columbia as sweetened water songs, songs that were kind of uh, kind of watered down versions that she had. and she talked about that. It was actually part of the labor was to take these songs that were written as, I wouldn't say light pop tunes, I'm sure they're well-constructed and, and um, artistically interesting, um, but a departure from the kind of music she was used to doing, and really kind of giving them the Mahalia treatment, making them sound like they were in uh, effect, either black vernacular um, songs, or uh, as she, as she often said, or as commentators said, making songs that were only inspirational or vaguely religious into sounding religious by the way she sang them. Um, so her voice is a really important part of the story because I think that in part the challenge of switching this performance styles to singing in church and being able to stretch out a song for 20 minutes and having to be on a radio program where you have two minutes and 30 seconds to um, to. to to shape your song, that was really challenging for her. And she found it very frustrating to have to work within these kind of tight limits. So there's the production aspect of it. There's the repertory aspect of it. There's the audience aspect of it. I think as her audiences shifted, um, she had to really think about how to perform in one setting uh, versus, uh, versus another setting. So I think it was um, something that she, Decided was important enough to her to be to take advantage of these opportunities to to benefit gospel more broadly, um, and I think that one of the questions that I posed at the beginning of the book that I think is um, just really interesting and some in some ways the animating question for me in terms of my interest is on the one hand. Mahalia Jackson is exemplary of gospel. She's a stand-in for the gospel field when she appears on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1952, which was an enormous deal within the black community to, um, to see an African-American on such a high-profile um, slot on television. She's really representing herself as an artist, but she's really a stand-in for the gospel field. She's the queen of gospel, the empress of gospel. She's a, um, um, an exemplar of the style of the field Um, of its performers and of its fans and church communities. On the other hand, as she took advantage of these commercial opportunities, I think for a lot of people, uh, or for some people, I'll say, um, they felt that it was too much compromise. um, And they struggled with the style of production, the kinds of repertory that she did. And I think there is a narrative about Mahalia Jackson that she sold out um uh, to uh, commercial opportunities and that far from being exemplary of gospel that over the course of her career, she becomes an exception within the gospel um, gospel field that in some ways she's uh, 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 kind of an ex- exception that she stands out from the rest of the field. And I find that really interesting of what it means to be both exemplary um and exceptional at the same time uh, within, uh, within, a, within a given field. A lot of the critics of her crossing, cro- not crossing over, but perhaps as they would say selling out, should be noted were kind of um, white male uh, critics. People like John Hammond, um, uh, who was very critical, even as an obituary of Mahalia Jackson talked about she abandoned her audiences or her audience's her Black audience abandoned her. Um, I think today she has, you know, in some ways her reputation has won out. And I think that she is considered, I think, really one of the um, uh, cornerstone uh, cultural political figures for African Americans in terms of um, exemplifying Black vernacular culture. But I think that controversy or tension within her career is a really important way of thinking about the contours of her career, but also more fundamental questions about Black public culture. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say
0: so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings
1: are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
0: Well, I think that's really interesting that this idea of authenticity comes up with her and that it's white men who are worried she's not authentic enough for black culture because doesn't that happen all through the 60s and 70s? There's so much policing by white men about black vernacular culture, like what's going to end up in the Newport Folk Festival, for instance, that sort of thing. So it's interesting that she also got caught up in that. Um in this kind of this, this discourse of authenticity, um, about black culture. And, and actually I wondered about that too. I wondered, you know, is the black culture that she was projecting through her music prior to, you know, say 52 or 54, you know, is that, is that, do you think it was somehow materially different because she was, you know, having to respond to, you know, what I'm sure is mostly white, um, Record executives and you know, radio show producers and so forth. You know what their idea of what black vernacular culture was. You know how what was going to sell as being black vernacular culture, or do you really think, or or do you think that that criticism about authenticity is 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 not valid?
1: Well, I think that it, it it shifts over the course of her career. I do think later in her career we get fewer recordings that. Um, document what was going on on the ground in the black gospel field. Um, and I think that's important to recognize. I think in her early part of her career, when she was at uh, Apollo, she was recording what were the gospel hits of the day. Um, she was recording songs by uh, by Thomas Dorsey and uh, Roberta Martin and, um, by Kenneth Morris, um, and and songs that were um, uh, Virginia Davis songs that really were um, exemplary of what people were singing at the National Baptist Convention, at the National Convention of Gospel Choirs and Choruses. Um, uh, Lucy Campbell was another songwriter who she sang lots of her songs. So and she would cite these um, song these black gospel songwriters in performance, and it was important for her to let people know that these were songs by Black songwriters, that they weren't just anonymous, in-the-air, traditional Black songs, but there were songwriters and there was a mechanism through which these songs came into being and circulated and became um, popular. Um, I think by after 1955, as, as... Black gospel itself, which is not a static uh, art form, new styles of gospel are emerging um, that Jackson herself was perhaps um, skeptical about. Um, kind of the uh, the some of the um, a more ecstatic and uh, performance driven uh, gospel groups um, that she thought perhaps. You know, sang too fast, or they just repeated the same words, or the message got lost. So she became, in some ways, she shifted from a, a vanguard gospel performer. She described herself the modern gospel singer when she first came to Chicago in the 30s and 40s, to a kind of old guard gospel singer. I've talked to gospel singers who said, well, I grew up in the 60s. And to me, uh, Mahalia Jackson was just kind of uh, was kind of old-fashioned. She was the woman on TV who sang those old hymns and old spirituals. So it's interesting. That's another reason I think 55 and the mid-50s moment is important to register, because I do think there is a there is a shift that's happening within the Black gospel field and other figures, um, like James Cleveland, um, uh, like uh, uh, the Davis sisters, or other more contemporary groups uh, later on uh the hawkins family that become the face of modern gospel so she's kind of uh she's kind of at a at a moment of generational she kind of identified i think increasingly with the old guard of the of the the builders of the modern gospel field from the the 30s um uh at at that time so uh, so I think the critiques, I do think it's true that she perhaps did shift in terms of the emphasis, or she didn't shift, but I think that's just what she was doing with Columbia. Columbia was her label. They wanted her voice um, uh, on these records that were, had this, you know, um, Percy Faith and, and, and various others, kind of producers with Ellington, putting her voice in the context of these high production value recordings um, so that that I think the production was almost as significant as the as the repertory. That said, and this isn't necessarily in defense of Columbia, but it is something to that I try to mention in the book, um, that they heard something in her voice. The fact is, I think it's easy for people to say that, well, Mahalia Jackson, not a dime a dozen, but that's just the black church. you know, there's a thousand voices like Mahalia Jackson in uh, and, and the black church she just happened to be the one that was identified and I think that a overnaturalizes her talent um, and I think it it kind of uh, uh, romanticizes what it means to sing in church right? I sang in church I sat in the pews and sang onward Christian soldiers you know and sang in the choir um, uh, every once in a while um, but The gospel field was a a field of professional activity, and people got training by listening to each other, by studying singers, by studying records, by performing, by crafting performance techniques in the context of church and church programs. Um, So I I think it's it's easy to say that you you could have just plucked another voice from the pews and put it in Mahalia Jackson's spot or Marian Williams' spot, or Clara uh, Clara Ward spot, and not recognizing the labor that went into, into making that music. So what's remarkable to me about the radio show is that though she struggles from time to time with new kinds of repertory, she's able to pull off a repertory that seems very far from her core church repertory pretty remarkably. And I just think the struggle and the successes and the near misses... Of that are as interesting as the kind of idea of transcendent art that's uh, already uh, perfect um, uh, uh, as we hear it on record.
0: Well, that answer just brings up so many strands that I wanted to tease out in this interview. And so I, to try to go from one question to another, the first thing I think perhaps we should identify what the Black Gospel field is. It's in the title of your book. You've used it several times, but um, maybe it's, it's a good time to stop at least and, and ask you to define what you mean by the Black Gospel field.
1: Well, I would say that there are styles of music that have been called gospel going back to the 19th century. Um, and um, uh, I think there are kind of songs that are identified with ways they were used in, in church services uh, and were sung by both white and black Audiences, Charles Ive used songs that he described as gospel songs in uh, uh, the American uh, experimental composer and in in the early 20th century. Um, When I use the word black gospel field, I'm really referring to this moment in around 1930 um, where Thomas A. Dorsey, uh, who was from Georgia, began as a blues pianist. Um, from Ma Rainey, um, recorded with duos with Tampa Red and was writing blues songs. Um, But then eventually started uh, dabbling in gospel songs and eventually uh, converted fully to writing gospel music. Um, And was just as a gospel songwriter trying to popularize his songs, what made his a conscious effort in collaboration with other pioneers of early um, black gospel Uh, Theodore Fry, Magnolia, Lewis Butts, uh, Sally Martin, um, to actually build a uh, domain of cultural production around these newly written gospel songs. Um, And it was very consciously in the late 20s, but specifically in 1930, 31, 32, where they created an organization called the National Convention of Gospel Choirs and Choruses, the function of which was really to build gospel choirs, black gospel choirs who sang this repertory into gospel unions that featured this repertory um, and then network those statewide and then eventually nationwide um, to circulate to circulate these songs. And it's a really um, uh, discernibly different moment than what came before. So I almost think of gospel, the black gospel field, as less about a particular style than really a kind of institutionalizing activity that placed gospel, modern gospel songs uh, at the center. So they're working in Chicago and building this. Um, and and Dorsey in the '30s became an enormously Uh, famous figure. He's often called the father of gospel music, which doesn't mean that he invented gospel music, but that really, um, it was recognized even as late as the fifties as a new style of music. Um, But he built this institution and was having annual conferences. Uh, Mahalia Jackson comes to Chicago and I think is a beneficiary of this institution building. Um, But what I think is interesting about Jackson is that she um, shifts the focus, or is, is, I should say, instrumental in shifting the focus from songs to performance and really gospel as a style of performing these songs, which then shifts the focus to records. So I think there is this moment where Jackson's instrumental in making gospel records really important. There are other people who are recording gospel records going back, but the um, the idea of, of of gospel recording kind of, I think, becomes really important to people in the field in the late '40s. So, I guess the short answer is, I think of the gospel field, and I I, I draw on the ideas of French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu um, in thinking about what a cultural field is, and it's it's it includes the songwriters, it includes the singers, it includes the famous singers like Mahalia Jackson, it includes the people who are just singing. Um, you know, once a year in their church. It includes fans. It includes promoters who are creating these mega events uh, um, that focus on gospel. It includes record labels. So I really see it as a kind of ecosystem of cultural production that is built around um, the performance and uh, dissemination and the consumption uh, of, of gospel music, and I I do think that early '30s moment is a is a key um, uh, moment of origination for modern gospel.
0: Um, as part of so, I think that's a really important uh, point about gospel music that it it is a it's an industry, right, and it has all these different. Uh, institutions and people behind it as an industry, uh, as there are many other industries about music. But so often when people talk about music, uh, they forget about that part, you know, or they conveniently forget that that it takes institutions to to create this. And and by putting that the sort of that field of people and of institutions in the center of it, I think it really you're able to place Jackson. Um, in a way that's much more um, that both, as you say, talk about her as an exemplar and as an exception, but also as someone who is working within a much larger network of people that, um, without which she could not have been as successful as she was, because you know that industry just w- wouldn't have existed without all of the, uh, without all of that sort of those people and those institutions. And I think that's something that really comes through in your book and is a really important point that gets gets overlooked in a lot of biographical projects. Um,
1: yeah, I think that, I mean, part of it, I mean, it's, it's convenient that Jackson has gotten a lot of um, publicity um, because it actually conversely allows us to focus on Jackson, but also um, because she's so uh, intertwined with the rest of the field, we learn about a lot of people just following her, um, people she's on programs with, Songs um, uh, that she's singing um, allows us to identify songwriters, uh, collaborators, accompanists, promoters. So, um, I I think the the and in the title is really important because it's uh, um, both are kind of interdependent. Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field.
0: Another sort of intervention that you make that I that I think might be helpful for other people doing this sort of work is the really inventive way that you choose to analyze her recordings. So you really do a deep dive into her Apollo recordings. And um, I've never, now I don't read a lot of uh, pop scholarship. So maybe I just have, or at least from this period, so maybe I've missed this, but I've never seen um, the kind of analysis you do with this kind of dividing her output into these three groups, these three different fields. But I thought it just it worked so well with the music and, and really comes out of the experience as a listener to the music. I went and listened to some of these recordings and I was like, Oh yeah, I totally get what she, what he's saying. This is, and I really loved it. And I love for you to explain for our listeners, like how did you approach this analysis and, and why, why this approach and not something um, maybe a, a more standard um, sort of um, musical analysis?
1: Yeah, that was really one of the more interesting and frankly more enjoyable parts of, the, uh, of, of writing the book um, um, because it's interesting you know, as, as, a, as a teaching music in a college classroom and, and writing about music, um, I know certainly from my students and even from my colleagues, um, faculty colleagues, um, that there's something about reading about music that can be very intimidating, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself. That people find talking about musical sound, um, they could be hearing it. You could uh, even something like meter, which is just the organization of of beats uh, in, in terms of regularly occurring accents, which sounds. Uh, Fancy, but really, when you put on a piece of music and someone starts tapping their foot to it, they already understand what meter is. They already understand what a beat is. But as soon as you say to them, What's a beat? Find the beat, then, then they're suddenly off put. So I'm really of the belief that, you know, people, we hear a lot more than we think we do. And then sometimes terms or, or concepts can just be ways of, of, uh, of identifying what we already have in our ears, so I, I, I really approach this as um, as a listener, um, as just listening to these recordings. What sorts of things uh, am I hearing? What sorts of features are recurring? Uh, and the more I listen, it just be, I remember just just spending a summer just listening to all these recordings, then you start seeing things group. they kind of group on their own um, that wow, this sounds a lot like this record. Why does it sound like this this record? This record sounds like this other record, but what's different? And once you do that, then you can think about um, uh, things like instrumentation, things about repertory. but feel is something that I think is not something musicologists typically, talk about we certainly don't learn about that when we're learning music theory um but i do think that it is something that mahalia jackson thought about when she sang a song like what feel do i want to bring it's the feel is almost like a delivery system for a song in a certain way um and it's connected with tempo it's connected with the relationship between the the accompanist uh and the singer um it's connected with how one phrases Um, and you see those approaches that you can deliver to a a single song with multiple feels. and uh, You see her do that uh, occasionally, but that just felt to me, and again, that's not the only way of thinking about uh, how these uh, songs work, Um, but I know that they happened um, to a recurring degree, uh, such that it, it just gave me convenient buckets to think about these songs. And then once you have those kind of bigger buckets, you can kind of think about the smaller nuances between these three fields. The three fields I talk about in the book are uh, a kind of swing feel, which is a kind of a, um, uh, a more up-tempo kind of uh, strong four beats, four regular beats that you get, which has a kind of swing feel you might associate with jazz, and, um, what I call a gospel feel, which is slower and has a kind of alternation between the singer and the accompanist, where the accompanist has a really integral role um, in filling these gaps in the, the phrases of the singer. Um, and then lastly, a, a, a free feel, which comes straight. That's more of a Baptist-style um, uh, feel, where a song that typically has a beat um, is performed with no meter whatsoever. So it's kind of rendered in this free, uh, feel where you can't really tap your foot to it. Um, uh, and, uh, but she brings that to her singing of hymns. When she sings hymns out of the Baptist hymn book, she tends to take that, to take that approach. So, um, I, I consider the analysis, uh, in that chapter really conversation starter. Uh, And as musicologists, we're so yoked to notation. Um, uh, It's an invitation to maybe think of, and of course, ethnomusicologists and popular music scholars uh, have have done this in other ways too, but um, just approaching as listeners and letting the music kind of give us the categories that we use for analysis.
0: The other chapter besides that one that was my favorite, this, this definitely was my favorite chapter was the chapter on her voice. You referred to it very briefly earlier, and I wanted to spend a little time on, um, how you talked about, uh, her vocal timbre, how she thought about her voice. And I can't remember the exact term you used or sort of the politics of the voice or the class politics of the vocal timbre that she, uh, that she used and that she, um, uh, and how she thought about her voice. And I, I'd love for you to share with the listeners just sort of what, what was your analysis of of Mahalia Jackson as a singer and as someone who was producing um, a very specific type of vocal timbre and who could manipulate that timbre when she wanted to?
1: Yeah, well, well we talked earlier about how um, uh, Jackson occupied sort of a liminal space Between sacred and secular, that she was firmly um, in uh, a a secular, excuse me, a sacred singer. Um, But there are moments where there was some bleed, so to speak, into areas of of secular repertory or even context of performance. I think another kind of liminal area in her career was um, how she thought of herself as a singer. I think she identified very strongly, as I mentioned, her family grew up in slavery and, and she, when she was in New Orleans, lived with her grandfather, so heard lots of stories about slavery and emancipation and, and sharecropping. Um, uh, so she identified very strongly as a vernac- as a black vernacular singer, that her voice, her songs, her style of singing was very much rooted in this black vernacular. Um, style of singing at the same time, I think, um, within black communities, uh, the politics of voice and particularly, um, styles of vocality that are related to, or suggestive of respectability politics, by which I mean, just simply classical training, having, uh, getting voice lessons, learning the, uh, so-called proper way to sing uh, with breath control and diction and phrasing and bodily comportment Um, you might imagine so just as a basic example the way we might uh, uh, the way we might see a singer deliver um, sound and and kind of actually act on stage if we go to a beyonce concert might be very different than we See on stage. We go to a vocal recital. So even those ways of thinking about what it means to sing um, uh, are really important. So Jackson, I, th- I really do believe, even as she identified strongly with black vernacular vocality, I think she was also very intrigued with classically trained voices, um, and she would often contradict herself. I mean, sometimes she would say, "You know, I am a. I don't know anything about." music i just sing the way i feel i you know i'm you know what one point quote i just love and just find fascinating she told jet magazine i'm america's most primitive singer um but uh in other contexts she was she was almost apologetic about not having and, and it could be that she was just asked a lot where did you learn how to sing mahalia Um, And she would say, well, I never had voice lessons. We were too poor to have voice lessons. So there was a consciousness uh, of the fact that she was not trained vocally. She would tell this story, a story that kind of uh, morphed each time she told it, but about having one voice lesson and she realized it wasn't for her. So there was this kind of uh, uh, performative telling of this story, um, which symbolized her rejection of uh, traditional, um, conventional voice training. Um, uh, but she, I think she felt some anxiety about that. Uh, I, I think that she, and in her rehearsal tapes, which I found so fascinating, she would sometimes sing songs, and these were made at home recordings of her practicing for her radio show, where she would sing songs and kind of pretend like the way we do in the shower or in our bedroom or whatever, pretend to be opera singers. And she would sing in that uh, in that style, almost like, and I really don't know whether she was trying it out or whether she was making a mockery of it or or what have you. So I think she had real ambivalence. I think she was very, very proud um, in, in this kind of, in, in being kind of rooted in Black vernacular vocality but also intrigued um, by this other way of singing. And she was conscious of this other way of singing or other ways of singing, um, uh, whether whether it be at church or whether people she heard in her, her community. But what I think is really interesting is that in contemplating that other way of singing, she actually had quite a broad toolkit in terms of vocal style. And from song to song, we hear her, using different kinds of different kinds of voice so i I think it impacted her as a singer the kind of resonance and power um of her of her voice at times did i think veer toward the operatic uh in in a certain way so it was just interesting me to note that she was conscious of that that you know far from being oblivious of of formal training she was deeply aware of it, um, which in some ways uh, helped her be more purposeful and decisive in the kinds of uh, singing that she, she chose to employ on one situation or another.
0: I was also fascinated by uh, – there were several times when, when people were trying to explain how good she was and how good her voice was – uh, Ed Sullivan said this. Well, she could be an opera singer. I mean, this is the hmm. <laughs> this is the pinnacle, I guess, of 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 the voice is to be an opera singer, and uh, at least in in these people's terms, and it's just fascinating to me that that's uh, the context in which vocal skill is it was uh, is measured. I guess is. Could you be a voc- could she be a, an opera singer? And in some ways, you know, maybe she thought wondered about that herself. In the way that she, you know, she, she admired several opera singers. She talked about them as being uh, role models, and also this sort of fascination with with that kind of training.
1: Yeah, there is a definite awareness of cultural hierarchy, and and I do think she grappled with it. I she had a close friend, J. Robert Bradley, who started out in the church, and they sang together. Uh, not in church, but with the National Baptist Convention, they and he was uh, um, very involved with the Black Baptist Church and the musical programs there. But he was funded by the National Baptist uh, 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 Convention to go study voice, and he went to London and various places. And she, they're good friends, but she would rib him about having deserted, as she said, gospel music. Um, but she was a very aware, of she and she was wondered like why, why do people privilege opera singer? Yet everyone seems to like popular music. Uh, it was a kind of honest question for her. Um, but I think she definitely was aware of that cultural hierarchy. And as as you mentioned, lit, grew up listening to Marian Anderson and other opera singers. Of course, opera in New Orleans. Even Louis Armstrong mentioned also listening to opera singers for for uh for phrasing so new orleans was unique in terms of that interpenetration of of opera singing and other kinds of uh of music but she was definitely aware of that um and the ambivalence i think is an interesting thing to consider
0: well I would like to continue talking about this book for another hour because I still have a ton of questions I haven't asked. But I think probably we should wrap this up now. So, um, before we go, though, I'd love for you to just share what you're working on now. You know, what do I get to interview you about next? Um, so, uh, what what projects are you involved with?
1: Uh, well, I, one thing I want to do is go back to the original book that the uh, uh, Mahalia Jackson book uh, took me away from, which was. Uh, as I mentioned, focused on um, uh, uh, the circulation of Black gospel voices in popular culture. And by that, I mean not just gospel singers who crossed over to popular music, but literally how singing identified as gospel singing kind of uh, circulated in the nineteen. uh fifties and sixties um i recently finished a uh should be out um, next year a mahalia jackson reader which extends beyond 55 um, but we'll have primary sources on uh, on jackson um, spanning her career and all the various activities she was involved in um i also got interested this summer i did a national endowment for the humanities summer institute in chicago at the Newberry library that was focusing on Chicago modernism. Um, and I got really interested and in, um, uh, through various, uh, uh, colleagues in the field in black classical music. Um, and I'm really interested how in Chicago in particular, the national association of Negro musicians was founded there. Um, and, uh, uh, just how black classical music—it's nece- not necessarily a kind of aping of white classical music. That it had really uh, community-specific um, uh, uh, meanings um, and uh, uh, was doing work more than respectability. So I'm just—I'm really interested in kind of uh, the emergence and this, the advocacy of classical music within black communities in Chicago, and also how it crosses over to gospel because Dorsey and all the members of that organization I mentioned earlier were part of the National Association of Negro Musicians, which I learned this summer, which I didn't know. So, um, so yeah, I'd like to kind of keep thinking about Chicago um, and thinking about the interpenetration of gospel and classical vocality um, in the next couple of years.
0: Well, that last project sounds like one after my own heart as well. I'm uh, absolutely fascinated both with Chicago as a musical center for uh, Black musicians, but also Black classical music is becoming more and more in, of interest to me too. So I'm really excited to hear that you're working on that and turning uh, your your attention to that, those areas. So um, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Kristen Turner with New Books uh, Network. And once again, we've been talking to Mark Burford, author of Mahalia Jackson and the Black Gospel Field. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.